If you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and our text this morning will be verses 7 through 15. Hebrews 3, 7 through 15. One of the great doctrines of the Christian faith for the Christian is that of assurance. The doctrine of assurance is that we can have assurance that if you are in Christ, you can be assured of being in Christ. And because we believe that once one is saved, that Christ eternally holds that person in their salvation. It's a great comfort to know that if I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm saved. And there's nothing, there's no sin, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. But one misunderstanding about the doctrine of assurance and eternal security of the believer is that we're actually not given assurance in faith if we depart from the faith. And that is exactly what we are warned about here in Hebrews. There is no assurance of faith for those that depart from the faith. You see, we believe actually in what's called the perseverance of the faithful. That once a person is saved, they are saved by faith and faith alone, but that faith, we believe, is never alone. And so we're given warnings in Scripture to check our hearts, to cause us to pause and uh, consider and examine our hearts before the Lord to see that we are in the faith. And that is the warning we come about to this morning in Hebrews chapter 3. And so this is the Word of God beginning in verse 7. Therefore, As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And this is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. And I want you to notice how this begins, is the apostle tells us in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. In other words, this is God speaking to you. If you want to hear the voice of God, just read your Bible out loud. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. This is how we understand Scripture itself, is the Holy Spirit is speaking through the Scripture. You will notice, says 
is in the present tense. In other words, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and I right now. This is God's Word for God's people that God has given us. And this is God speaking to us right now through His revealed Word. And we're going to see... That you'll notice in your text, there's a quotation there. This is coming from Psalm 95. And so we think about the Psalms themselves. The Psalms are not just reminiscing of the past. They're just not thinking back on past experiences of Israel or of David. But rather, the Psalms themselves are living and breathing and relevant for this present moment for us right now. What a blessing it is that we sit under the reading of the Psalms every Sunday, isn't it? And how often that we read those and we see how relevant they are to us right now. In fact, we're told this is the purpose of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us. This is God speaking to us. Through His Word, He has given us His Word, past and present in the New Testament, for us. And so when we read Scripture, we're reading God's Word spoken to us and for us. So we better pay attention. The admonition is this to us right now. This is what God has to say to you right now. It says, therefore, we keep hitting these therefores, and by now you know what it means when we see therefore, it means we have to go back. In verse 6, we were given a conditional statement, and it was this, and we are his house if... If makes it a conditional sentence. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our hope and our boasting in our hope. The final verse that we read is verse 14 where it says, If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's this statement, those that would proclaim Christ, they can have this assurance of faith if they hold to the end, and there's an example given for us of this exact problem that so many face. And it begins by referencing Psalm 97. You'll notice what it says today if you hear his voice. That's the beginning of Psalm 97 in verse 7. Now, if you were to read Psalm 97, I'll give you a, just a brief summary of it. It begins with a, a call to praise God as King. It's a psalm of praise, but right at verse 7, it takes a sharp turn and it goes into warning. So the first seven verses of Psalm 95, which are not quoted here, begin by praise of God, and then in the middle of verse 7, it turns to a warning against turning from God. Specifically, as referenced here, as the wilderness generation did. So today, if you hear His voice, now just think about that today here. 
is the psalm was written hundreds of years before the book of Hebrews was written. And this word today was written down by pen into the book of Hebrews that we have today 2,000 years ago. But just as it says, the Holy Spirit says, meaning God speaking to you and I, we still see this is relevant for what? Today. Today. And when it was originally written, it was during David's time. And if it was Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews, which I think, then it was written down during Paul's time in the first century. But if we can read the word today, that means that it's for right now. Put this all together. Right now, today. If you hear his voice, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. In other words, what we read of here is relevant to us right now as a warning as it was during David's time and as a warning to us as it was during the first century. And the author of Hebrews looks back upon this incident of rebellion from his children It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And so this is an example of those that did not persevere to the end. And we're told why they didn't persevere to the end, because they hardened their hearts against God. Now I just want you to notice, look at verse 8 with me. Notice the word rebellion, and notice the word testing in verse 8, if you see that there. In Psalm 95, you don't find the word rebellion or testing there. You actually find the word Meribah and Massah. That's what is referenced in Psalm 95. And when we read in Hebrews, we see the word is replaced with rebellion and testing. Now, there's a reason for that. The children of Israel had tested God, and through their testing of God, they had rebelled against God. And we see this in Exodus chapter 17. We're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus and in the Old Testament. And we see this where it says, after they have rebelled against God because they wanted water, And God said, strike the rock to Moses. And Moses goes and strikes the rock. There was two times where he was to get water from a rock. The first time he was told to strike it. The second time he was told to speak to it. This time he was told to strike the rock. And this is what we read in verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Those are the words that are used in Psalm 95 that we see in Hebrews as testing and rebellion. And here's the reason why they're called testing and rebellion. If you look at the definition of Massah, it means testing. 
And if you look at the meaning of Meribah, it means quarreling. God actually named a place testing and rebellion because of the rebellion against God. Massah means a place of trial or a place of testing, and Meribah means rebellion. They rebelled against God. In fact, they said these words, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God had rescued them, promised them land, promised them great blessing. And what is it that they do? They reject the Lord God and rebel against him. They had given him so they had God had given them so much. And what they do is they rebel against him by saying, "Did you bring us out of Egypt just to merely kill us?" You see also another rebellion of theirs in chapter 14 of Numbers. And this is very interesting because the people are about to be given the land. And if you remember, they send out spies. The spies come back and say, uh, we can't take this land. We're like grasshoppers to giants. They're giants there. Except for Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can take this land. It's ours. It's there. This is what the people said in their rebellion. In verse 2 of Numbers, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? In other words, God had given them so much provided for them, but yet they say, We would rather go back. Egypt. God is going to kill us out here. You read in verse 22 of Numbers 14, where you read this, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in, the, in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice. God had given them Everything rescued them from slavery, rescued them from the Egyptian army, fed them food from the sky, gave them water from a rock. But yet they continually said, Would we could have just died? And so God says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. That means this. Do not reject. Do not have an obstinate heart. Do not have a stubborn heart to God's voice like they did. They were given so much. They were given everything. God rescued them, but what did they do? They rescued, they hardened their heart. 
Now hang on that for a second about hardened hearts. Scripture teaches us that man is born with a heart of stone. In fact, a promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 verse 26 is that God will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So here's the question. How do we harden an already hardened heart? How do we harden an already hardened heart? It is to reject God with a hardened heart that we already have. God doesn't have to harden our heart. It's born hard. But every time we reject God's word, what do we do? Harden our heart. And we are held responsible for that. Calvin says this, It must ever be the case with men that they harden their heart until another be given them from heaven. We are born with hardened hearts, and every time we hear God's voice in His Word revealed to us, and we reject it, we harden our hearts. We reject Him. And so what we're told here is today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, that's the command, as in the rebellion and on the day of testing in the wilderness. Do not do what they did. If you have heard God's voice and reject it, do not harden your hearts. We go on to see in verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You know, sometimes we have that arrogant idea that if I saw some sort of miracle, I would just believe. Well, you can look at thousands of people that did it for 40 years and saw the most incredible miracles and yet did not believe. You can look at the three years where Christ was active in His ministry and miracles were taking place, and yet there was people that did not believe. You can look at the the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, and it's not that you see miracles all over the place in in the book of Acts, but yes, you, you do see them. They see something extraordinary that cannot be explained by anything else other than it is supernatural and it's from God, and they yet what do reject God, despite seeing His works for 40 years. They had put God to the test, despite His faithfulness. And to say put Him to the test, it was actually to say they rejected Him. They tested His patience. They tested His mercy. They tested His goodness. They tested His grace. They continually rebelled against Him in the time of wilderness. And the wilderness itself for the children of Israel was a time of testing for them. Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. God put them through the wilderness, as it says here, as a time of testing for them. And what did they do to God? They rebelled against Him, revealing what was truly in their heart. 
the character of their rebellion was to continually question God's goodness for what God had given them. They got tired of the things that God had given them. We're tired of this manna. We want meat. We're tired of having protection. We want a king. I'm tired of all of these things that God has richly blessed me with that I actually did not earn. I'm tired of it. You think about Eve fell into the same trap with her husband, Adam. When God says, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Any tree. Look at all the trees. Look at all the fruit. You can have any of them. Just don't have this one. Which one did they eat of? They had of the one God said not to eat of. They rejected God's mercy. They rejected God's kindness, and they rebelled, just as the wilderness generation rebelled against God. You see, here it is that we have to come to grips with is this, is to reject God's word is to reject his kindness for you. We are tempted by this constantly, are we not? We will confess God is sovereign. Every good thing comes from God. He is ruling through His providence. And anything I have of his, is, is from Him. I, I recognize that. But it's not enough. I want more. We have to come to grips with the nature of sin, which is a rejection of what God has given us. It's a rejection of God's word. It's a rejection of God's mercy to us. And the good news is this, is when we're faced with this temptation, we need to look to Christ who was tempted in the wilderness himself and says we are told that he is able to help those who are being tempted And so when we come to face this ourselves, we must first look to Christ. But there is, a, there is a warning here. And the first is to those that would reject the gospel. The warning is for those that would put God to the test in a sense that they completely outright reject Him. They will not enter His rest. But there is a warning here for those that know Christ, right? Right? Because today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What would that mean is this, is those that would reject his word. And this is really all of us, isn't it? This is what we struggle with on a day-to-day basis, is every time we sin, we're rejecting God's word. What did Eve do? Eve rejected God's word. What did the children of Israel do? They rejected God's word. To reject God's word is to reject God himself. When we reject God's word as being true for our life, we are rejecting God himself. God says this, do not lie, but if I think, well, it would be better for me in this situation if I lie, what have we done? We have rejected the truth of God's word 
for our own truth. How often is it that we are recipients of so much from the Lord, but we then question His goodness and mercy to Him, and we reject Him? So look at the result in verse 10. This is the result of hardening our hearts. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. The word provoked is interesting. In the Hebrew, in Psalm 95, it's loathe. Such a harsher word than provoked. It says, I loathed them. That is, I rejected them. They rejected God's goodness and God rejects them. And we're given two reasons for this rejection that help us actually interpret the meaning of these warnings. Reason one is this, they always go astray in their heart. Their hearts were hardened and always qualifies the characteristic of their rebellion. If we begin to think, okay, if I sin, that means I am rejected by God. That's not what it means. Because Christ has made propitiation for our sins. He is a faithful high priest. That's not what it's talking about. It is, what is the characteristic of my heart? Is it always in rebellion against God? This is why God flooded the world, by the way. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. They always harden their heart. Their heart is always continually bent upon evil. It's a characteristic of rebellion. It's not the person that maybe goes through a season of brief rebellion, but is truly in Christ. It's not the backslidden person that's talked about here. It's the one that's qualified with they are always in rebellion against God. It is a condition of their heart. Their heart is perpetually a hardened heart because they have not been given a heart of flesh. But there's a second reason. They have not known my ways, and that is this. They do not know God. They hear His voice, but reject it. So why were they in constant rebellion against God? Why are people in constant rebellion against God today? Because they did not know God. They had uncircumcised hearts. You see, rebellion does not result in a hardened heart. Rebellion is the result or consequence of a hardened heart. Rebellion flows out of a heart that is hardened. This is an important lesson for us. If that is true, a heart that has been made new is not a heart in rebellion against God. It's a heart that has been replaced with a heart of flesh that now has a new capacity and new desire to love God and to love His Word. Does this not call us to examine our own hearts today? Have today I heard His voice? Have today I heard him speaking. I plead with you to take this seriously because there's eternal consequences for it. This is a generation of people that were given an example of that they saw the mercies of God. They were chosen. They were 
privileged and set apart and were exposed to so much of God, but yet they did not know God. They rejected him. And the consequence is seen in verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is the consequence. And if you notice, it says, as I swore, that is, God takes an oath, and then the words after that, the phrase, they shall not enter my rest. What you do not see there is what's in the Greek and in the Hebrew is the word if. If they, sh- they, if they, if they shall not enter my rest, which is an awkward English word. That's why we say they shall not enter my rest. But the whole purpose of me pointing that out is this, is God is saying, I I swear that if they shall enter my rest, I will become undone. That's the meaning of it. God is saying in this, I am taking this oath that if this children will inherit that land, I will become violently undone. In other words, God will cease to be God. It's an impossibility is what's stated here. Those that hardened their hearts against God, he says it is absolutely impossible for them to enter his rest. That's a frightening statement, isn't it? That God swears it to the point of promising that he would go and undergo a violent death. For the children of Israel, it was inheriting a land. It was the land of promise that they had been promised to Abraham. And God says, this is, a, this is your rest. And you read of the covenant promises. If you are obedient, you will have these blessings. And if you are disobedient, you will have these curses. In other words, through this, you will have rest. Well, by the time David writes this in Psalm 95, it takes on a different meaning. Cain and Tate took, uh, began to point to a greater reality. But even today, as we're not looking to inherit a plot of land in the Middle East today, rest is something different. It points forward to a promised reality that we will have in Christ. But for those that have hardened their hearts and reject God, it is impossible for them to enter into that rest. God will become violently undone before anyone enters his rest that is hard in their hearts against him. It's an impossibility. There is absolutely no way to enter. There is a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the entrance into life. And anyone that tries to enter into it apart from Christ, will be struck down. So verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers. Take care. That is, be diligent. Look at your heart. Take a look. That's what it's called. Take a look. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So, it's explained to us here why they would fall away. A heart of stone, 
He says, lest there be any of you. Now, this is amazing to think about because here the Holy Spirit has been speaking to a group of people that professed Christ. That's why the Apostle Evans calls them brothers in the text. But he's talking to a collection of people. You see in verse 8 the, the plurality of do not harden your hearts. So he's speaking to a group of people here. Take care, brothers or sisters, that is a group of people that professed Christ. So it is conceivable that within a group of people that are professing Christ, there is one that does not know the Lord. And look at the condition of their heart. This is why. The heart is described as evil, which means to be sick or diseased. The heart is described as unbelieving. And that right there is the cause of not inheriting the land. Why did they not inherit the land? Because they had an unbelieving heart. They did not believe leading you to fall away from the living God. So what is the result of a heart of stone? What is the result of an evil, unbelieving heart? It is to fall away. It's not drifting, but it is complete intentional apostasy, just like in the rebellion. God, why did you give me all of this? I would rather be back in slavery in Egypt. It's an intentional Rejection of the message that they heard. It is a rejection of God's mercy, of His kindness. It's the equivalent of this. If we hear the gospel, and we have heard the gospel but reject the gospel, and we decide like this group here is in danger of doing, and going back to, I'm just going to trust myself and earn my way back into heaven, we will fall away. We will fall away. This falling away is directly related to a heart that does not believe. Meaning this, true faith was never what? It's never present. You ever wonder, you've probably experienced this in your Christian life, why is it that some that professed Christ, they fall away? Well, the text teaches us they never believed. They never believed. The danger of the Hebrews is that they were in danger of rejecting the goodness of Christ, rejecting His work. They were going to reject the satisfaction that had taken place in the cross. They were going to reject His righteousness. How many today have heard the message of the cross but are not resting in Christ, but rather trusting that God will not reject a good person? That's the danger. Look at They're going back to, they're thinking about, about going back to Moses. They're thinking about going back to the law. That's our temptation today. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Everyone always qualifies that. Have you ever noticed they says they always qualify being a good person with, well, I never murdered anyone. Well, congratulations, you didn't take someone's life. You've really achieved a lot. 
This is, this is how we think. It's part of our human nature, actually, just to rely upon our works and our own goodness to get to heaven. We see it everywhere. We think that we can work our way there, and that's the danger, because when we think we can work our way there, what have we done? We've rejected Christ. Yesterday, as I was driving my Amazon Music, I'm not sure how this works, but it, it just pops in songs. And, and, and the song popped up, Last Kiss. It was originally written by Wayne Cochran in 1961. It was a bomb. And in 1963, J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers re-recorded the song. And it was a huge hit. And the song was, you've probably heard it, the song was about a couple that was on a date and they get in a car accident and, and his girlfriend dies. And the lyrics say, say this, Where oh where has my baby gone? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. How good is good? for you to be able to see your baby in heaven. How good do you have to be? How well do you have to keep the Mosaic law? How good is good enough? How good do you have to be? The confession says this, it is personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience is required for goodness. How many of us have ever experienced personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience? How good is good enough? Unless it's perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual, guess what? We've fallen short. We've fallen short. This is our warning. Look at verse 13. But exhort, but, but. This is how we deal with this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. That's our solution. Encourage while you can. You say, that's a funny solution. That how we persevere in the faith is often through other people? Well, how did you come to faith? Through other people. This is a warning given to a congregation. And notice what God says here. Is look, there's a great danger for people to rebel against God. And he says, hey, wake up. You can help one another in this. And I'm going to give you a means for helping one another. And it is this, is that you exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, you are to do this. And the purpose of this encouragement here is specifically so that they won't be hardened by sin. You think about why we gather. Does this ever cross our mind of why we gather? We gather oftentimes, rightly so, because we want to worship God. We gather 
for the purpose of worshiping him and that mutual encouragement. But did we ever think that our gathering together and our encouragement of one another may be the thing that helps us through? That's why we're said, but exhort one another every day. You know, you cannot encourage nor be encouraged unless a couple of things take place. You're there. Your presence is required to be an encourager. You also have to be intentional about encouraging one another. Look at this is what we're talking about, falling away. means that we're not here just for ourselves, but we're here for others. And so when we gather, we need to be thinking how we can encourage, not avoid one another, but rather embrace and encourage one another. Listen to what it says, for this reason, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you're given the characteristics of sin there. It's deceitful. It's misleading. What does it mean that the the, the sin is deceitful? It means it it does this. It promises, but it cannot deliver. We're to encourage one another that we don't fall into sin. Because sin is so deceitful. One commentator says this, sin does not advertise its lethal, lethal consequences. So when we gather together, we're to exhort one another. For verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So proof of our heavenly calling is holding to Christ. We are justified by faith and faith alone. And through faith, the active and passive obedience of Christ is imputed to the believer. That is his righteousness. We believe in justification by faith alone. Faith is this, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. That is according to the the confession of faith. But there's something about true saving faith. True saving faith is a faith that endures, or as the confession says, yet it gets the victory. Notice what it says here, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. True saving faith is a faith that endures. You see, someone might start off right, but they don't end well. Why? Like that seed that was scattered pops up, maybe trusts in Christ for a second, and then falls away. You know, if we just say, well, we believe in Christ... Well, you've reached demon level at that point. Because we're told in Scripture, even the demons believe in in Jesus. It is trusting in Him. It is receiving Him. It is resting upon Him. Why do we believe this? Because we believe in a complete salvation. He who began a good work in you will what? See it to completion. We believe in a complete salvation. 
And so the warning then is a, this warning for us is a means of examination and a means of us to continually draw us back to Christ. And he concludes this with verse 15, Today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not fall away. Do not harden your hearts. Let me ask you, do we embrace God's word for our life or do we only accept the convenient things? Do we seek to encourage one another knowing that lives depend upon it? That should help us reframe how we think about our gathering. It's not just something we do, but rather it's God's means for people persevering in the faith. Have I truly known the Lord? Have I truly heard His voice today? Have I accepted, received, and rested in the Lord Jesus Christ? Has He gotten the victory for me? Then today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but look to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him in all things, for He will see you to the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, that we are not justified by our works, but we are justified by your grace through faith. And in that alone, that we receive the righteousness of Christ. Father, please help us that we would be people that persevere, that we would have these desires to follow your word with all of our heart, because you have given us a new heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.